you can go out there and think about what what are the things that matter to you? What what piques your interest? Because I think if you act on something which brings you joy or meaning um, or that you have curiosity or wonder about, those are the places to start. And if you enjoy being outdoors and are thinking about how can you help um, bring the outdoors to other people or share that with other people, um, all you know, you can be volunteering in parks, whether that's at state parks, which has a volunteer program, um, or through your regional or local park system. The Life in Motion podcast is brought to you by Actual Outdoors. They help build beautiful brands that highlight the approachable and authentic parts of outdoor recreation. Said simply, they keep it real. Learn more at actualoutdoors.com. This is the Life in Motion audio experience, a podcast about travel, action sports, culture, and more. What's up, and welcome to episode 138 of Life in Motion. I've got Catherine Toy with me, who's the Deputy Secretary for Access for the California National Resources Agency. Working with the Department of Parks and Recreation, she's helping expand equitable access to public lands, museums, and historic spaces for all. I'm excited to hear her story and learn why accessibility is so important. Uh, Catherine, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. Yes, yes. And, and as, as I mentioned in the intro, um, this sounds like some pretty uh, uh, awesome things that, that you're working on, um, you know, to, to, to help share everything, <laughs> essentially. But before we get into that, um, let's, let's go back a little bit and let's talk about um, who, who Catherine is, you know, where you grew up, hobbies you had growing up. Like what, what kind of led you into this in the first place? Sure. Well, um, I am from the Bay Area, which is where I still live in California. Um, I grew up, um, uh, you know, in the suburbs of San Francisco, between San Francisco and San Jose. And um, in the, gosh, that I now live in San Francisco, the fifth generation in my family to live in this city. Um, So I have always grown up, you know, just loving the state of California and the incredible um, resources that we have in our state to be outside, whether it be the mountains or the ocean um, or somewhere in between. <laughs> yes, yes, but plenty, plenty to explore there. Um, so I guess when when you were, um, I, I guess as, as a kid, was that kind of where that um, kind of the love for kind of all all that it had to offer as far as uh, exploring and adventures. Did it kind of start there kind of with, with your family or did that kind of, um, you know, grow as you got older? Yeah, you know, it's funny sometimes. I talk to folks in the world that I'm engaged in now with the outdoors and conservation and um, that's not really the background that I grew up with. So meaning we did go camping some as when I was a kid and I was a, a Girl Scout my whole life. I still am. I was a Gold Lord Girl Scout. And so I did go camping and sort of being outside with Girl Scouts, um, learned how to you know build a one match fire and all of that. Uh, but that said, that wasn't actually my favorite part about being a Girl Scout. <laughs> I do sometimes uh, laugh at how I'm in this world now. Uh, but I, I certainly did have um, an appreciation of the outdoors from that experience when I was growing up. Yeah. So, so then if that wasn't your favorite, then what was? 
so? Well, you know, I think for me, it was about being a leader in the community and being able to um, give service and think about um, how we all make a difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and obviously kind of, you know, uh, definitely makes sense with, with what you're doing now as well, kind of, you know, starting from an early age in that regard. So, you, you know, obviously, you know, uh, spending out a, a lot of time outdoors and helping others and all that stuff through Girl Scouts, um, I guess, where was there, like, uh, as you got older, you know, obviously your kind of focus was on the, the service aspect of it, but I, I guess what kind of what kind of led or did something lead more into that as you got older through school and that kind of stuff or well you know my entrance to working with parks in my career as an adult has really come from the historic spaces side of things and um, you know when I my first career actually was as a history teacher and okay. history was something that I always loved and was fond of. And as a child, um, my father had in the back of his closet this great box that I would love to go in the back of his closet, like on a rainy day or something. And in that box, which was kind of falling apart at the seams, there were all of these old sepia-toned photographs and newspaper clippings and things like that that were about my father's family's history in the United States, which is a little bit of an unusual story in that as Chinese Americans, uh, my great-great-grandfather came to the United States in 1880 and went to live in Wisconsin, which isn't the, you know, first destination that might pop off the top of your head if you're <laughs> um, Chinese coming to America in the 1800s. So um, that always fascinated me. And um, then I went on to teach history with that. And in my teaching of history, I used to say to my students, well, everyday people make history every day. And I wanted them to see themselves in history and to be a part of their lives of, of taking action, of not just letting history, which I think so often um, kids in school think that's old people, dead people. Um, you know, people that just don't have a lot of um, relatability to their lives. And I didn't want them to think that history happened to them, but that they actually get to make history themselves. They and their families and their neighbors and their teachers and the grocery store clerks by everyday decisions that we make each and every day add up to be a life lived and a life of history. Um, and mostly didn't want them to think that they're, you know, that they wouldn't be in the driver's seat in their lives to take action, to be engaged in, in making the community that they want to see around them. And that includes voting, right? I really wanted them, you know, and to this day, I kind of joke, but don't joke that if any of my former students are out there and they're <laughs> not voting, like, and they are eligible to, I, I feel totally okay that I'm like the devil on their shoulder making them feel really <laughs> guilty about that. No, that's, that's great. And yeah, no, to totally, totally agree. And it's a, it sounds like a, well, one, I, I love the story of, you know, you kind of diving into um, your, your family history and that kind of stuff. Um, 
which is it, which is funny when my wife laughs at me for keeping uh, not that we had a, a similar story as yours, but keeping all of our old family stuff. It's like, what do you need that for? It's like it's cool to look through and learn. Um, but it, it's cool how that kind of yeah. led you into being the history teacher. And not only that, but your um, I, I think it sounds like your perspective of history um, was probably a little bit different, um, maybe from some of their other history teachers, you know, where it's saying, you know, you're, you're making history every day, you know, no matter how big or small, it's it's all telling a story and all, you know, <laughs> matter one day uh, or another. So that's a that that's really cool. Um, did uh, so so you you so you were a teacher for a while. Um, obviously had a love for history. How, I guess, what was the next transition from there? Yeah, well, you know, I, after I was teaching history for about six or seven years, I thought like, well, now is the time to do something different. If you wanted to, I had paid off my graduate school debt. I had, you know, um, I didn't, own a home or have any mortgages yet or, you know, anything like that. So I thought, well, this is the time if I'm going to take a chance to do something. This is maybe the most financially um, free I'll be um, to not make any money and take some chances. (laughs) Uh, And so I had thought about what would it take to open a family history and immigration museum on Angel Island, which is the... um, historic, the home of the historic U.S. immigration station on the West Coast, uh, which is located today in Angel Island State Park in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And that is a place that has a lot of history tied to the Asian American community uh, and to my own family um, and its history in the United States, um, because it was built, really, the U.S. immigration station in Angel Island was built to enforce the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first law in this country to really ban entry by a specific um, group of people on the basis of of race and nationality. So that law was in effect for over 60 years in this country, and a lot of people didn't even know it. And surprisingly, you know, I had grown up not 30 miles from the immigration station, and I never knew it existed until I went to college. And that was you know, despite the fact that my own family had ties um, to that place. And it was just something that had been erased from history, almost. Um, You know, the Chinese exclusion era is something that, one, most people certainly don't know about it. I, I feel like in the last 30 years, we've done a little better job at getting people to know about it. But certainly when I was growing up, it wasn't something that people talked about, even if it was in your own family history. And the history was that people were detained at Angel Island, mostly Chinese and then other Asian immigrants, um, for days, weeks, and up to two years waiting for entrance to this country. Um, and, you know, in a country that told them, we we don't want you here. Um, And most people don't know that. And, you know, what had happened is with the history, um, I think it it makes one think who makes history, who gets to tell the story. And what does it say if your history isn't told or your story isn't told? Um, And so, you know, that's to me where that's how I ended up getting involved with with 
parks uh, was really through that lens of it and through the fight to preserve and tell the story out at Angel Island. So it became, you know, I ended up um, talking to all these people just saying like, what would it take to do this? What would it take to do this? <laughs> and um, I talked to funders, I talked to museum people, I talked to you know, all just different folks. And, and somebody connected me to the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation, which had been around for, you know, probably at that point to almost 20 years and not quite, um, but had been an all volunteer organization. And there were individuals involved who were looking to take things to the next step. And so I joined the board of directors. We were all volunteers and I thought, oh, maybe someday the foundation will have enough money to, you know, I'll write curriculum because that's my background, right? I knew history, I knew education. Um, and I ended up becoming the first full-time executive director of the nonprofit. And we took on a, a $40 million restoration of the historic immigration station. Wow. Well, uh, it sounds like your 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 wandering years as you know as you're doing that kind of end up being uh, pretty pretty successful. And it's um, you know it, you, obviously you uh, loving history. You know that that makes perfect sense. You know there's oftentimes that um, so many things kind of get hidden. And as you're as you're kind of telling that, I was trying to think back if I remember learning that, learning that in school. Um, and my my memory does not serve me with that. So you know, that's, that's an excellent, uh, excellent point. Um, and then also to, you know, to be kind of the, the person to sort of, um, you know, get the foundation sort of in, in gear to, Hey, Hey, we need to do this, especially, you know, if they've been around for that long and it sounds like everybody was on board, obviously a, a pretty big, uh, restoration project. So once, once kind of that was done, was it, I mean, I guess, what was the, um, the, the, the feedback, I guess, from, from the community about kind of, you know, bringing, bringing that history kind of back, back to life, um, in that sense, you know, through that. Yeah. You know, I think the work to really preserve the immigration station and tell its story is one that said for the Asian American community and Chinese American community in particular, um, was the restoration and the telling of the story really allowed our community to, reclaim that piece of our own past and um, to come out from a shadowy and sort of this this history of secrecy and shame that was put upon the families um, to say, you know, this is a part of our history. It might not always be pretty, but we can't forget it, right? We don't learn from our past if we don't tell the stories of where we've been. And I think there has been an amount of both pride and, and more of a saying, hey, we do belong here. Even after all these generations, I think that legacy of exclusion can just be so long lasting, not only for communities who've experienced that exclusion, um, but, but for the mainstream community who not knowing that history also um, I think contributes to othering a different group of people, right? That they don't know yeah. the history of. And so, you know, that's something we feel to this day in this country. And the thing about Angel Island and the interpretation of, of what happened at that site is 
that to me, and maybe this is my history teacher lens, but it is um, not just about the history of one community, the Chinese American and the Asian American community, but it really dies down into deeper questions that are at the heart of our American society and that we've struggled with as a society, which is, you know, who, who belongs? Who do we include in this country? Who do we exclude? And who gets to decide that? And how has that changed over time? And those that, that, you know, eternal push and pull in this country between the pride of being an immigrant nation and our treatment, historic treatment of immigrants and, and contemporary, continued contemporary treatment of immigrants is, that's a tension in this country. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and you know, kind of, you know, bring bring that 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 part of the history kind of back to life to you know ideally you know pre- prevent uh you know things like that that happening in in the future so uh, you know obviously it sounds like it was um a, a good good feedback and good opportunity from the community um to to do that through through the project um and it, it sounds like you're you know still still working with them uh today as well yeah. so as that which is which is awesome so so kind of, you know, you know, one as it's still very uh, impressive undertaking to to kind of get the ball rolling and kind of oversee all that. So so as you were seeing, um, you know, uh, kind of success from, you know, that restoration project and, and that that lens um, where I guess where where did that that lead you to naturally kind of like what doors did that open? Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, and if anyone out there is listening as a nonprofit executive director, they know this feeling, which is um, I felt like, at, you know, when I came into it, and I was pretty young still, and, I, you know, I had my background as a history teacher, but I knew nothing about running an organization. And I used to liken it to having this small sort of startup nonprofit that was like a, uh, goldfish bowl or something that I was carrying, but our project was like a two-ton whale trying to fit in the goldfish bowl. And you just, you know, you never know what's going to um, come up and bite you or like, that's not a big deal (laughs) or it's really going to come back to haunt you, right? So those are things that I think in any time you're in a, a new role for the first time, you just don't know. Right. And so, um, you know, running a nonprofit organization is and I always think like, oh, you know, that role for me um, in some ways is was the best job I'll ever have and also the worst job I'll ever have at the same time. <laughs> right. Like hard, so hard um, because you're doing everything um, yeah. and you're writing grants, you're trying to raise money, you're actually, you know, going out there and trying to work with the historians and partner with the park, you know, state parks. And, um, and we also had a a joint partnership with state parks and the national park service at the same time. And I remember going to sit in these meetings and, um, you know, in this three-party partnership with two big agencies, right? A big state park agency, the big national park service agency and our tiny nonprofit and thinking like, wow, like I walk into these rooms and I'm generally, I was the, you know, the youngest person there by a fair amount, the only woman and the only person of color. And that is just, you know, 
you feel those moments tremendously in that space. Um, so for me being, um, you know, I, I was in that role as an executive director for four, a little over four years, and then said, hey, it's time to, for the organization to begin a capital campaign. I think uh, I might learn how to do that too, but I feel like I'd be a little bloody coming out on the other side, time to hand the baton off to the next person. Um, so with that, I, I went back to my education roots and also did some work um, in the nonprofit sector. Um, around education and volunteer engagement. Um, and I also wanted to be, you know, learn more as a nonprofit professional being in a larger organization. Um, so I did that. And, and to me, that's, again, building on that civic engagement portion. What role do we all play as individuals to take part and shape our, um, the communities we live in? Uh, and then after that, I actually went back to my alma mater to work at Stanford University. Um, and my role there was really to look at um, the university's boards and councils and to volunteer leadership at um, the highest levels of the university um, and to look at how do we build pathways for engagement and to build more representative boards and councils that um, more were more representative of the changing um, demographics of the university alumni body. So that seems like in some ways, I feel like my career journey has been a little odd, but I also think that at the heart of it really has, it has been connected by engagement and what role do we all play in seeing ourselves and having agency in the communities that are important to us. Um, And so while I was working at Stanford, I was also still heavily engaged with Angel Island. At that point, I was, um, had stepped away from the organization for a few years and then come back as a board member and later chaired the board of directors. Um, And so I was doing that where I thought, in my life, can I have a little more work-life balance by doing the things I care about avocationally in the nonprofit uh, as a volunteer, but work in, you know, an environment that might be a little less, um, I don't know, fully uh, in, engaged in my life, like every, every living moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, you, you got to have your, your, uh, your you time and, and yeah, to your point, you know, obviously have a kind of a very uh, diverse kind of career backgrounds that you have, but also, you know, there's that, that common thread, that common uh, theme of service and engagement um, and, and awareness. So, um, and then especially kind of um, it sounds like almost kind of working with the, um, the, the leadership kind of culture at Stanford um, to, uh, you, you know, kind of change that and be more representative of, of the different, um, the, the different individuals that are there at the time. So, or, you know, the changing demographics, as you mentioned. So, so, so kind of with that, where, um, where, you know, it's, here? <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, I mean, it's, How it's, it's, we, we keep, we, we keep going. I love, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting story. So was there, were, were it's, was it that connection or were the connections there at Stanford that helped get to that next spot? Or was there another journey between now and then as well? 
Yeah, there was another space. But what I really thought, um, I think in in my life, I was always asking, you know, how, where was the balance between sort of working more in closer to community-based organizations, which in my mind is both, you know, really personally meaningful to me and also which is with my own, I suppose, personality and the way I work can be all encompassing. And so, you know, after being at Stanford for almost a decade, I thought it's time to go back to sort of be more in the community. Um, And so I went back and I looked at different opportunities around and I uh, went to work for the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy, which is um, a very large nonprofit based here in San Francisco. That is the, um, I would say, loosely speaking, the nonprofit partner of the National Park Service and the Presidio Trust, uh, which operates the National Park Service here at Golden Gate, um, operates some places that most people in the world will know, like Alcatraz and Muir Woods. Um, and other places here in the Bay Area that are part of the National Park Service. So that role was really, um, uh, I began my role there as the Executive Vice President of um, Partnerships and Programs, and that was really looking at our mission-focused work um, from education to volunteers um, and to community engagement uh, and more. And that was really thinking about how are we um, really as an urban national park, how are we really engaging um, with the community around us? Um, and what does it mean to connect people in parks? Uh, and I th- that was an exciting space to be and with an organization that was um, quite a bit larger than others nonprofits I'd worked with in the past. Uh, and I left that organization then to take the current position. And when I left the role, I left as the deputy CEO. Um, and I think you know, that was truly an exciting place for me to have been with the Parks Conservancy, where I learned so much from my colleagues there about um you know, being part of of a parks organization that is also looking um, forward to the future and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be in the outdoors? What does it mean to be an urban park? Um, what does it mean to engage folks who have traditionally not been um, a part of sort of the outdoor um recreation or the outdoor stewardship and conservation spheres. Yeah, no, that's definitely, especially, you know, with, with it being such a large organization from that standpoint and so many different, different parks and and to your, to your point, you know, how to, how to get the, the individuals that aren't typically kind of involved with that. So, um, and obviously it sounds like you kind of worked, worked your way up the ladder, um, and that, in that role as well, um, you know, where, where you kind of left off. So, with, um, you know, obviously it sounds like the, the, the two backgrounds from the history and then working with the parks and accessibility kind of from, from that aspect, um, 
or, uh, you know, kind of obviously the, the perfect uh, uh, foundation for, for everything. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when I look the my current role as Deputy Secretary for Access is the first um, of its kind here in California. Nobody has had that title before. Um, and it, it to me, um, when I first heard about the role and was approached to say, oh, is this something you would be interested in applying for? I actually said no. <laughs> I said, um, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I have a job that I like. I enjoy the people I work with. Um, and being a part of government service like that was just not something that seemed like I wanted to do. Um, but I did remain in conversation with folks at the state who said, ah, you know, are you sure? Did we just maybe surprised you by, you know, you haven't thought about this kind of thing. You want to sleep on it before, you know, we haven't developed, we're still developing the, 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 the job description and thinking about how this is going to be and talking to a lot of people who, who we think might, you know, be fits for the job and asking if they would like to apply. And so I just kind of like kept that in the background as, as they were getting things together. Um, and when they finally did, I still wasn't sure, you know, I thought like, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's something I want to do. Um, but, you know, I had an experience here in San Francisco. My stepdaughter and I both did in the summer of 2021, which just honestly changed the path for me. And that was that we were both the targets of anti-Asian hate on the streets of San Francisco. And in, in two separate incidents, exactly a week apart. And I thought, you know what? My stepdaughter is the fifth or sixth generation in our family to live in this city. And I thought about how heartbroken my great-great-grandparents, my great-grandparents, my grandparents, who lived through the era of Chinese exclusion and all the discrimination that that brought with it in this city and in this state. And for them to know how othered their family could still be this many years later, I think would just be heartbreaking to them. Yeah. And then, you know, like I was upset, obviously. I was angry. And then I just kind of got mad about it because I was like, dang it, you know, that's just not right. Um, if I can do something to make a difference, to try to create more belonging in this state, in this country, then I got to try. Yeah. And, you know, for me, access and belonging are really tied together. I think that public lands are, and public spaces are civic spaces, right? It's where we all get to mix and mingle, whether we want to or not. But if we all belong in, in this space, right, you only are going to feel like you're going to be a part of this country of this state that you're going to go out there and back to my beginning as a history teacher that if you're going to go out there and make a difference if you're going to go vote you only are going to feel like that matters 
if you feel like you belong, right? So where, what role do we all play in seeing ourselves as a part of this great civic machine we call democracy? Yeah, no, and well, it's, um, even, even the, the story or kind of the lead up to, you know, you not being sure about the, about the role, um, that sounded like that just, uh, made them want, want you to take it more. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the, the unfortunate instance, instance, um, of, of the hate thing, but that was ultimately being the catalyst for, for you doing it, which then in change, you know, helps you create that change. So, so, so with that, like, you know, everything that you just said, as far as, um, you know, from, from making people kind of feeling welcome, welcoming and, or welcomed to matter, to make it feel like they matter when, when they vote, uh, to actually go out and do it and those things like that. How, I guess, what, what are you doing to kind of, um, I, I guess, change that culture, if you'll call it culture, um, to, to kind of make those steps forward? Yeah, so my I was tasked when I came on board. So um, Governor Newsom appointed me to my position in just, uh, a year, almost exactly a year ago, I think. Hmm. Um, I Happy think a year uh, ago anniversary. tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, uh, and then I started in January. And um, my first role, and that's what I've been doing all of this year so far, ha, uh, is to develop a strategy for the state. Um, and that is, you know, equitable access is one of three priorities for uh, the Natural Resources Agency um, under Governor Newsom and Secretary uh, Crowfoot. And that is um, not only access, but also um, biodiversity and conservation. So that's our um, preserving 30% of California's land and waters by 2030. Uh, and then also climate smart solutions, right? So how are we going to um, counteract climate change? What kind of climate actions are we going to take um, in nature in order for us to have um you know, a more livable planet and more livable space for for plants and people. So those are really three priorities of the Natural Resources Agency, access, biodiversity, climate. Um, And I'm sort of the the last deputy secretary over one of these priority areas to come on board. Um, And my work is really to say, how are we going to embed equitable access into the Natural Resources Agency and our 27 different departments and entities. Uh, and how are we going to make that, push that forward to make a difference for California? Yeah. Right now. Which, yeah. I would say, which, which sounds like a, a pretty, uh, pretty big uh, undertaking in that sense. So what... Um, what what are some of those those things is that you know working with those local agencies and kind of just identifying uh, kind of key opportunities I guess to do that or yeah so I think the first thing was to really take stock of well what does equitable access mean to folks and my colleagues um, who are running the other two strategies on climate and biodiversity um, they really went out last year in the, as a part of their strategy uh, process and ask that also as a question because the governor's order on a 30 by 30 really 
did also say that we should preserve 30% of California's land and waters in a way that also promotes um, equitable access to the outdoors. So they did a first run on, on um, kind of hearing from the public, what does that mean to them? So I took a look after I came on board this year at that initial um, public information that had been gathered. And then I also talked to our departments and conservancies and various entities within the agency to say, what are both the challenges and opportunities in expanding equitable access in your departments? Um, and so that was good to yes, get a grounding also of what's going on already in the agency, which is considerable. You know, we've done some um, terrific things already. And so the questions might be, how do we um, amplify those efforts and build them out? Um, and where are other opportunities or, or where are there sometimes some barriers to doing more work on equitable access that we could um, try to break through in order to um, accelerate the work? So, you know, and then I went out and I did a bunch of um, community-based workshops across the state that community organizations co-hosted with me uh, to kind of take that thinking that we had gathered so far to the next level. Um, so I finished all that in, gosh, only as recently as the end of October. Now we're heads down in writing and establishing that strategy and hope to have that released early next year. Yeah. So it's, well, it sounds like a, a, a pretty big um, uh, year uh, in that regard is, is I guess in, in that, or over the past year and kind of during those, those workshops and stuff, were, were there any, I guess, anything that really, I guess, surprised you about, about any of it so far? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, one of the biggest takeaways, and I guess it's not surprising really to me, and maybe as I've related to you, my stories, um, it kind of all makes sense together, which is, that says somebody in one of our workshops said, if people don't feel like they belong, the rest of it doesn't matter, right? So like you could build more parks, you could, um, you know, establish more um, wildlife refuges or that kind of thing to, to literally create more spaces for access. But if people don't feel like they belong, they're not going to go. And so that essentially, you know, that fostering belonging in the outdoors is huge. And so there are a number of things that it, when the strategy comes out that we'll be looking at in terms of how do we all work together to foster belonging about who belongs in the outdoors, right? And some of that comes down to, um, at, at one point, I kind of laughed and would say to people, um, although I am serious, is that sometimes like, we need a dang good advertising campaign as <laughs> not the end all be all, but certainly it would help and along two fronts. One, that to really show what is the great diversity of people in the outdoors um, and who can be outside, right? And that you don't need to have, you know, specialty hiking pants or um, you know, a $300 jacket to be on the trail. Um, so, you know, 
what what are you know what are the different kinds of ways that people can be outdoors um, and also what we heard from every workshop and also I heard from all of our departments was people simply don't know where they can go how to get there and what they can do there so that is a big thing and it's not that you know the various uh, departments, like state parks or national parks or our local park and rec wouldn't don't have their own websites and things that tell people where these locations are. They do. But the average person on the street doesn't care if that's a national park service site or a state park site or a regional park site. They just want to know what's available and what can I do there. And they don't want to go to 27 different websites to figure it out. So that also has come up is how do we do a better job of letting people know what's available and what they, you know, how do you yeah. know what kind of other entry fees, what can I start hiking? Can I bring my dog? Can I, you know, is it good for somebody who's in a wheelchair? So these are all things that um, we can, I think, work together on as, um, different uh, departments and agencies and with the public to say, hey, how might we do a better job of getting information out there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some some people might avoid a spot just because they don't know what they can or cannot bring there. And so they That's never end right. up going in the first place and don't know how to find what, you know, what the answer is to to that question. So, you know, to, to kind of make that um, kind of a central kind of uh, hub, it almost seems like you're, you're trying to create to to share that information. Um, and then I guess for, for the, the other part, as far as like the belonging aspect of it, you know, obviously you are all are kind of working on the strategy and, and everything, but is that, is that sort of, I guess you envision that, you know, you know, bringing these diverse groups of people outdoors and kind of like, it, kind of jumpstart that, that, um, that track to that way or like what like how do you envision that you know with, with so many people so so many different types of people as well to kind of help them yeah. break down that their i guess their own personal barrier if that makes sense yeah and some of them are their own barriers, and some of them are barriers they face from other people or who either work in these places or who are recreating outside right so um part of that i think it's a it's it's from both directions. So one yeah. is, um, you know, every one of our, uh, in my community workshops I heard is education, right? School. Schools are where we can reach such a vast number of people, not only the kids in schools, but also their families, right? And yeah. so um, one of the things that California State Parks has piloted this past year is this thing called a fourth grade pass. And it means that every fourth grader in California can get a free California State Parks pass. And then oh. that way they can take their families. Um, and anecdotally, we've certainly heard that, you know, these kids have a lot of pride in being able to be the ones that provide this experience for their families with their free pass. Um, and so, you know, there are also another past program that State Parks put out this year was um, that's on a three year pilot. Um, and this was year one and it's been enormously popular is their library pass. 
And so every California public library and tribal library has a state parks pass that you can check, or several, um, that you can check out just like you would a book. And so that has also been something that reduces barriers, you know, some of the financial barriers to people uh, being outside. Um, and then in terms of the, you know, really how do we introduce more people to the outside, more comfortable with outside, there are a lot of great nonprofit organizations doing work to bring people outside who haven't traditionally um, been recreating outdoors. Because there's also a lot of people who are outside, but it's not necessarily a joyful experience, right? Yeah. So you could have uh, work at be working outside and thinking like, this is not how I want to relax. Um, or you may not be have the um, knowledge or the um, experience or the financial resources to um, have equipment if you want to try surfing or mountain biking or something like that. So there are a lot of terrific nonprofits that are doing work to help introduce people to the outdoors and say like, hey, these are, you know, these are just, um, we can, have field trips to, you know, places like Yosemite or to the coast or so forth, um, just to provide exposure and also knowledge. Um, so there are grants both um, from several places uh, within the state. So, for example, we have uh, State Parks has outdoor equity grants that go to nonprofits that are doing this work. Um, the Natural Resources Agency and the Secretary's Office have youth community access grants also, which, which do the same, um, focusing on young people. Um, and so I think these are the kinds of programs we're really looking at. If these have done well, how do we scale programs like these, right? Or our Department of Fish and Wildlife has a program called Fishing in the City. Um, and they're, um, they have staff members and equipment and they're teaching, you know, a whole new generation of people about fishing. So I think, yeah. you know, these are some of the programs and things that we're looking at. And we're also looking at workforce because it matters. So a lot of times, you know, when talking to different communities, they'll say, we don't see people who look like us or speak our language um, and so forth. Uh, and so all of our, um, departments within our agency are looking very seriously at what does that workforce pathway look like? How do we maybe take young people who've been in some of these great outdoor programs with nonprofits or who have entered the California Conservation Corps, which is one of our, our departments and does an excellent job with young people. Um, how do we build more um, I suppose, um, easier or more sort of uh, easier to maneuver pathways into state service and into jobs where not only are, um, do we have a workforce that's more representative of California on the front lines in terms of who's taking your entrance fees or who's interpreting history, but also who's making decisions even at the highest levels. And when I speak to young people, I, I joke with them that 
they should be going for, you know, my boss's job. They should be the secretary of natural resources, one of them someday. Um, and I hope that's true. Um, so we, there is, I think, a lot that can be done about fostering belonging. And it's about, you know, when I think about my own experience with Angel Island, it's about whose stories and what California history are we telling in, in yeah. our public spaces? Um, and to that end, you know, they, um, California State Parks and the California African American Museum are in a new partnership to better tell um, the history of African-Americans in California through our state park system. And, you know, I think that's a really important partnership between two state institutions. And that's all new this year. So, um, you know, I think the state's doing a lot of good things. And, you know, in the strategy, it's really about how can we work um, even better toward this future that we'll see more equitable access. Yeah, no, absolutely. And sounds like uh, uh, 2023 is going to be uh, packed with uh, lots of good stuff for y'all. And uh, and I like some of the, you know, some of the different programs that you mentioned, you know, not not only are they different um, touch points as far as age and kind of where where the individuals are in their life, but they're, you know, can, some kind of, uh, you know, out of the box thinking, um, at least from my perspective, when you were sharing them. So um you know, definitely a creative way to kind of, you know, break down those barriers and whatnot in, in different ways and, and really kind of uh, make an impact, which it sounds like a well, well on the way to do that. So, um, so, so one thing I always uh, like to ask our guest um, is kind of one piece of advice for um, that our audience can take away and, and kind of, it's, it's sort of a, a mix of, of both what you're doing now, but also sort of your, your, your entire story, which has been very, very uh, service oriented and, and helping others and figuring out how to give back to your community while also creating that sense of belonging. Um, you know, obviously your position, um, you know, working, you know, through, through the government and with different organizations and stuff, um, you know, you have a little bit more resources, but for somebody that might not have those, those resources in their area, but still have that same kind of passion that you do and still want to create that, that welcoming and belonging um, in their community and, and their, in their own way, what, what is your advice, advice for them to kind of get started and start, start, you know, creating that, that impact in that way that can maybe, you know, catch on, uh, to something much bigger. Mm, yeah. I love that you asked that to everyone. <laughs> um, I think it's really, um, you can go out there and think about what, what are the things that matter to you? What, what piques your interest? Because I think if you act on something which brings you joy or meaning um, or that you have curiosity or wonder about, those are the places to start. And if you enjoy being outdoors and are thinking about how can you help um, bring the outdoors to other people or share that with other people, um, all, you know, you can be volunteering in parks, whether that's at state parks, which has a volunteer program, um, or through your regional or local park system uh, to get out there and do that and gather a group of folks or friends and bring them with you, uh, help to show them what's out there. And then if you're interested, you know, more in the um, 
school or the youth side of things and helping bring programs to youth, I would um, encourage you to really look and see what organizations are in your community uh, that are working um, with youth and the outdoors. And I think just being able to do some searches, um, that's the wonderful thing about having the internet these days. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember that when it wasn't so robust, um, but is that you can really search around and to find opportunities to engage. Um, and there are also large volunteer sites like Volunteer Match uh, and such that are out there that are um, helping to literally um, showcase opportunities for others. Um, but I would certainly take a look um, both at your local state park, the one that's closer to you, or through the California State Parks Foundation, which also manages volunteer opportunities for state parks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of get get yourself out there in that way and, and find, you know, find the best fit, um, which which I love that. And, and it seems to have worked out well for you so far. So um, but uh, where where can people find uh, uh, you you online or uh, everything as the resources and stuff that you offer online or, or whatnot? So to kind of learn more um, if, you know, maybe they they haven't kind of heard about your work before. Sure. Well, you can visit the Natural Resources Agency's homepage at resources.ca.gov. Uh, and there you'll see links to all of our initiatives. So Outdoors for All is there, but um, I will confess that it, sh it should be updating <laughs> shortly when we get the strategy released in early 2023. Um, you can also email in to find us at outdoors at resources.ca.gov. Oh, I'm sorry. I just gave a website. That would be um, email to um, outdoors at, uh, yeah, resources.ca.gov. I guess that's right. Awesome. Well, definitely uh, make sure uh, check out see see what uh, you know as, as these kind of different initiatives and the strategy and everything kind of continues to roll out. Definitely um, check it out. But I appreciate you taking uh, your time to share your story, um, your passion. I, I appreciate the work that you're doing, um, and I wish you uh, wish you the best in this year. Great. Likewise, and thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you've made it this far and like what you've heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let your friends know about life in motion. Until next time.